Well, brothers and sisters, today is our last official day in the book of Exodus. Lord willing, Josh will be preaching for me next week, and then the following week, uh, I'll be back. We should be, Lord willing, starting in the book of Exodus, but today is our last official sermon in the book of Exodus. This is our 91st sermon on the book of Exodus, a little over 30 more than in the book of Genesis because we spent, uh, I think we spent 25 sermons in the Ten Commandments themselves, so that kind of put us far over Genesis. I, I give thanks to God. I, I confess in the great assembly that God has sustained me to preach all these sermons. Uh, I thank God for that. But I also thank Him because of all the goodness of God that we've seen in the book of Exodus. Amen? We've seen so much of Christ. We've seen so much encouragement, so much instruction for the Christian life, so much of God's faithfulness and steadfastness and deliverance, all of that in the book of Exodus. I thank God for that, and I'm sure you thank the Lord for that as well. And it makes me look with anticipation to the book of Leviticus next, like, oh man, there's more. There's more Jesus. Give us more Jesus. We're only two books in, guys. There's so much more, right? Well, today, as we just read, we are covering the actual setting up of the tabernacle. In many ways, the ending of Exodus is very epic. It ends on a very, very high note. Um, this might sound cheesy, and it probably is cheesy, but what kept coming to my mind as I was preparing uh, for this sermon was the end of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, right? That has an, an epic ending. They destroy the Death Star, right? But then they have this huge procession in the end, remember? There's all this like great John Williams uh, music, and everyone's just smiling, everyone's happy. Han Solo and Luke and Chewie come in, and uh, Han and Luke get medals. Chewie doesn't for some sad reason. It's like, okay, whatever. But they, they get rewards, and it's just this high note, and then boom, it ends, right? It just, it just it ends on the highest note possible. In many ways, Exodus chapter 40 is kind of like that. It ends on such an epic high note. On the one hand, it's very amazing and epic, not just because it, it, amend, it, it, it ends with this amazing visual display of God's glory coming down, filling the tabernacle so powerful and so full that Moses couldn't even enter the tabernacle, but it's also epic because in many ways, the whole book of Exodus has been leading up and crescendoing to this point. We saw God save his people from slavery in the beginning. He saves them and calls them to himself that they may be his people, that he may be their God, and that he may dwell amongst them. And now everything that's been leading up to this is finally here. God dwells amongst his people. Furthermore, a big part of the drama of the book of Exodus has been the Israelites getting in the way of the fulfillment of the tabernacle, especially as we've seen with the golden calf. They break covenant with God. He casts them off. He's no longer their God. You are no longer my people, and especially my presence shall not go with you. 
Moses intercedes, and God kind of relents, but still, my presence shall not go with you, lest I destroy you. And it's like, oh my gosh, everything that has been leading up to this point, they, 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 they dropped it right at the very end. And so when God relents, ah, it's like this huge resolution after this tension, and that's finally here in Exodus chapter 40. Well, all that to say, Exodus 40 is very, very much about fulfillment, big fulfillment. We'll see that because of this, it corresponds to the fulfillment of many New Testament realities as well. When Christ actually comes and accomplishes our redemption, Exodus 40, in many ways, is a picture of those various stages of that fulfillment, those high points crescendoing bigger and bigger in the history of redemption until the ultimate high point at the very end. Well, having said that, what I want us to do today... Um, oh, wait. No, hold on. <laughs> I got a little, little messed up. Having said all that, I do think, even here, as, as, as much harmony and resolution as there is, I still think if you listen closely, there's the slightest bit of dissonance still in the background. I've described this as a tension we see all throughout Moses and the, the Mosaic Covenant and the tabernacle and all that. There's so much that points positively to Christ. It's just like, this is a picture of this. This is Christ, the greater fulfillment. And yet we also see this tension where it's very clear, this is not Christ. This is insufficient. This is deficient. It points by way of contrast, not so much correlation to Christ. And I think that even here in this passage, um, I think there's even still some of that, though generally it ends on a very high point. I think we'll see that as well, hopefully. Well, having said all that, let's now turn to our text. I want us to walk all through this passage and... Uh, even though most of the application will be towards the end. And for the purpose of organizing this whole section that we uh, will cover into bite-sized pieces, I have the following outline for you. These are not my points of application. They're just kind of, uh, I used to have a seminary professor who would say, just something to hang your hat on along the way. These are something to hang your hat on along the way, just kind of organizing the passage. First, at the very end of chapter 39, verses 42 through 43, we see the completion of construction. The completion of construction. In verses 1 through 15 of chapter 40, we see the command to erect and consecrate the temple. The command to erect and consecrate the tabernacle, sorry. Verses 16 through 33 shows us Moses' fulfillment of those commands. Verses 34 through 35 show us really the high point of the passage, the indwelling and filling of the tabernacle by the Lord. And then lastly, verses 36 through 38 give us a look beyond the book of Exodus. We could, we could say it's the writing off into the sunset at the very end, okay? So first, the completion of construction Look at verses 42 through 43 of chapter 39. 
It says, according to all that the Lord had commanded, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Here we simply have a summary statement that the work is finally complete. Verse 43 tells us in the ESV that Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. However, instead of the word saw, the verb is probably better rendered, Moses inspected the work, rather than that he merely saw it. In fact, verse 33 tells us that the Israelites brought the tabernacle to Moses, really for the purpose of inspection, and the reason is kind of a simple one, and it explains a lot of Moses' actions in chapter 40 as well. Throughout, uh, uh, the reason is this. Although God delivered verbally the instructions for the tabernacle to Moses, and Moses gave those same instructions verbally to Israel, yet only Moses had actually seen in a vision on top of Mount Sinai what things actually looked like and where everything actually went. In fact, if you remember, God didn't just tell him, he showed him in some kind of vision. For example, Exodus 26.30 tells us, you sh or tells Moses, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So Moses was the only, new, only one who knew exactly how everything was supposed to look and where everything was supposed to go. I imagine that they were constantly coming to Moses. He was daily inspecting their progress, and they would say, is, is, is this what you mean, Moses? And I think he would say, I, I think this is good, but this should come out a little bit more. And then they would kind of go and do the work um, and make their adjustments. This is also why in chapter 40, it is Moses and not Aaron and the Levites primarily who set up the tabernacle. Not that Moses didn't have help from the Levites, he surely did. Setting up the tabernacle was not a one-man job, and yet because he was the only one who knew how everything fit together, where everything went, he is the one in chapter 40 who is the one directing all the action. And even there, um, it's kind of comical to imagine, but you can imagine Moses like, a little to the left, more to the left, right? No, the laver, the laver goes here. Uh, the land, yeah, almost, just a little bit right here. And again, because it had to be done exactly to how the Lord commanded it. So the construction is complete. They bring it to Moses for inspection. It passes inspection, and he blesses them. Next, we see the command to erect and consecrate the tabernacle. It says in verse 1 of chapter 40, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now, the first month of the Jewish calendar year was the month of Abib, roughly equivalent to our month of April. This began their Jewish calendar year because Israel, like most ancient peoples, began their year at the beginning of spring, right? They began it at the beginning of spring, so March, April, depending on your ancient people. The month of Abib is significant also here, however, because it was on the 14th day of the month of Abib 
that Israel departed from Exodus, which means the tabernacle has finally been constructed and erected just two weeks shy of the anniversary of the Exodus. This is why it actually says in verse 17, in the first month in the second year on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So it's almost been a full year since that day came to pass, and now they have 14 days to begin to prepare for their first Passover outside of the land of Egypt. Continuing in verse 3, God says to Moses, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle at the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it, and you shall set up the court all around it, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. The only thing uh, that I would point out to you here is that just as we saw in chapters 25 through 30, the tabernacle items are mentioned in order of their significance, right? In chapters 35 through 39, they are mentioned in order of their actual construction. However, here, because this is the command section, they are mentioned in order of their significance. For example, here the ark is mentioned first, but it says you shall put the ark in it, which assumes that the tabernacle will be constructed before the ark goes in, but the purpose here is to, to order them in the order of significance or holiness of the items. Later, when Moses fulfills this command, it begins with the actual tent. Look at verse 18. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded. He, put the, he took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, right? So there it starts with the whole structure, the tent in verses 1 through 8, it's arranged by significance, okay? Verse 9, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Here we see that Moses is not just to build the tabernacle, but to consecrate it, which is ceremonially necessary before the Holy Lord comes to live in it. It's not enough that it's built. It must be made holy because the Lord is holy. Verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. 
and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Now here, I would say, I don't think that this consecration of Aaron and the Levites is their official consecration and installation to their full duties that we read of in Leviticus chapter 8. Remember we read that? I, I had the analogy of there's cracks in the foundation even from the very beginning. And we see they are fully consecrated. Uh, all the duties are given over to Aaron. And they go through all that. And then Nadab and Abihu mess that up. I don't think that that is this event here for some very important reasons. I think that probably happens sometime very quickly after that. But I don't think that happens here. Here what we see is it's really Moses who's still acting as high priest. Moses burns incense. Moses um, puts an offering uh, uh, on, on the altar. Aaron and his sons don't do that. They're consecrated so that they can help him. Um, the house is made holy, so you have to be holy to go into the house now, right? But it's not their full transfer of all their duties. That, that will happen sometime later, Okay. All right, section number three, Moses' fulfillment of these commands. It says in verse 16, This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the, <clears throat> the mercy seat above the ark. Uh, could you give me a cough drop in my desk? I'm going to start to lose my voice soon. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Verse 21. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their feet, washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and put the screen, thank you, put the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Just briefly note again the constant refrain, as the Lord commanded. John Gill says this phrase is nearly 20 times expressed in this and the preceding chapter to show that everything was done by the workmen and everything put in its proper place by Moses exactly according to the will of God. 
no one pursuing his own fancy and private judgment, but all consulting the mind of God and acting according to that. Amen. Well, finally, we see the tabernacle is set up. It's been consecrated. The servants inside the tabernacle are consecrated, and everything is ready except for the most important part, the Lord of the house who shall now appear. Look in verse 34. Here we see the indwelling of the tabernacle. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we must note that what we just read, the covering and the filling of the tabernacle by the glory of the Lord, has never happened yet up to this point. It is a level of God's presence that has never been experienced, even by Moses. This is something new. We see it particularly in the language that the cloud covered and especially that it filled the tabernacle. That, that kind of language has never been used even with the previous tense. For example, although God did descend in the pillar of cloud many times before to talk with Moses at the tent of meeting, the cloud is always said to stand at the entrance of the tent. For example, Exodus 33, 9 when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. But here we see the cloud covered the tent and filled the tent with the glory of the Lord. Indeed, so full was the tent of the glory of the Lord that we're told in verse 35, even Moses, shining face Moses, was not able to enter it says, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The reason of all of this kind of language of covering and filling is to communicate to Israel, God now dwells amongst you. He had visited them previously uh, temporarily to meet with Moses but now he officially dwells amongst them, and so there is a level of God's presence that they have not yet experienced before. Well, here we come to our first bit of application by way of typology. And I would say there's a threefold typology that can be drawn from the fullness of the filling of the tabernacle. First, this passage points to the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is fully God. He's not a visiting theophany. He actually dwells in the flesh. For example, consider John 1.14, which I've read before many times, but consider it from the perspective of God coming down and filling the tabernacle in Exodus 40, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, where from his fullness, his pleroma, we have all received grace upon grace. Or Colossians 1.19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Notice, in both of those passages in Colossians, there's the word fullness, pleroma, 
right next to the word dwell. Now, dwell there is not the same word in Greek that John uses, um, which is more quite literally like tabernacled, but it's also, con- um, it's also regularly used to speak of God dwelling, especially in the temple. In fact, the language of Colossians 1.19, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is even perhaps an allusion to Psalm 68, verse 16. I put it on the back of the order of service just so you could kind of see. It says in the ESV, it speaks of the mount, the mountain, which is another image of the temple, right? It says... uh, Sorry, I got lost. The mount that God desired for his abode. Now, the phrase was pleased to dwell in Colossians does not sound all that similar to desired for his abode. And that's because the ESV is based off of the Hebrew. But if you look at the Septuagint translation of the same passage, the verses are almost identical in so many ways. That's why I put them side by side. You can see the verb The Septuagint reading is, the Lord was pleased to dwell in it, in his mountain, in many ways. Paul is very likely making an allusion to that. Again, we see side by side the fullness of Christ and the term dwelling. Christ, in Christ, God is said to dwell. I think that that is meant to be an echo and a hearkening back to Exodus chapter 40. The point is this, before Exodus 40, God had come down occasionally and briefly, but never permanently. After Exodus 40, he is said to truly dwell amongst his people in a tabernacle of animal skins. Before Christ, God appeared in various ways with theophanies, coming temporarily, but with Christ, Emmanuel, God is truly said to dwell amongst his people in fullness, not in a tabernacle of animal skins, but of human flesh. He's not an apparition. He's not a theophany. But by virtue of the hypostatic union, when you see Jesus, you behold God. You are looking and talking to God in the flesh, not a man animated by God, but God who has a human nature taken unto himself. That's the first filling or fullness that Exodus 40 points to. Second, Exodus 40 points to the churches being said to be filled with God such that even we have the fullness of God in a certain sense. Turn with me first to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. Oh, The tabernacle's a house, the temple's a house, it's the house of the Lord. Okay, filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we see first there's this great filling. Um, it says also tongues of fire come to rest upon them. Now, we don't have any mention of fire in Exodus 40, but when the, when the Lord um, descends with Solomon's temple, it says fire comes from heaven, and even then it fills the tabernacle and the priests cannot enter. So here, just as, as the cloud comes down and rests upon the tabernacle, so also these tongues of fire come down and the house is filled and they are filled with the Spirit. This is later seen that also the church now has the fullness of God in a mysterious sense. For example, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Perhaps you've read this, the phrase here, and been like, what does that mean? Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Paul says, And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? Notice first, it is the church, the body, which is said to be the fullness of him. It's not a reference to Christ. It's not saying... Christ is the fullness of the Father. It's the church, which is the body of Christ, which is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, something to note, not right here, but just a short time later, Paul describes the church, as we just read, as a temple, a dwelling of God. For example, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, back to Ephesians 1.23. Here the temple, the church temple, is said to be the fullness of him, who fills all in all. But still, what does that mean? Think of Dr. Seuss. His puzzler was puzzled, right? What does that mean? I think this means that just as Christ's having the fullness of God speaks of the hypostatic union, that God and the Son has truly united himself to human flesh, so also... The church, having the fullness of God, speaks of her true, not hypostatic like Christ, but true, nevertheless, union, spiritual union with God. God has united himself to human flesh so that human flesh can now be united to God. Paul says in Colossians 2, 9 through 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Notice how there's this connection between Christ who is the temple, but then the church who is the, is, is the temple as well. On the one hand, Christ is the head. We are the body. On the other hand, he's the chief cornerstone, and we are the tabernacle 
we are filled through him. Okay. Uh, sorry, I got, got lost here. Okay. Lastly, the third filling that is uh, uh, typified in this, pack, in this passage. It points to a filling, a fullness that yet awaits us, which is the full filling of the church on the one hand when we are fully glorified. It is the temple being filled, but most broadly, it is the filling of the new heavens and the new earth with the glory of God. It is such that all the earth shall be filled with his glory. For example, it turns me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What's interesting about Revelation 21 is that on the one hand, John is speaking about all of new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But then, instead of going on to describe its valleys, its rivers, its forests, its canyons, all those things, he actually begins to speak in detail of a city-slash-temple, the New Jerusalem. G.K. Beale asks, how can one explain the apparent discrepancy in John in verse 1? He saw a new creation, and yet the remainder of the vision only observed a city in the shape and structure of a temple. He says, it is possible, of course, that he first sees the new world and then sees a city temple in that new world. That's possible, he says. However, he ultimately rejects that view, arguing that rather we should understand this vision as meaning that, quote, he says, the perimeters of the new city temple encompass the whole of new creation. That reality will be, or that, that, that truth will be a reality one day, brothers and sisters. There will no longer be a separation between most holy and holy. Not even then. Notice how even in Revelation 21, something comes down from heaven. There is a uniting between heaven and earth. At first with Christ, it's a uniting between the second son and human flesh. Then it's a uniting between God and the church. And then lastly, it's heaven and creation being united together in the last and final filling. This is a certainty, brothers and sisters. In fact, the Lord swears by it. And in fact, I think we just kind of glance over this phrase a lot in the Old Testament, but it's all over the place pointed to. For example, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, when the people refuse to enter into the promised land out of fear, God says this to Moses. Truly as I live, 
and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Hear that? Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. As I live, and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The future filling of all the earth with the glory of the Lord is said to be as certain as God's life, which is the most certain thing in all of existence and reality and truth. It's the bare minimum for any other kind of reality or truth. God's existence, he says, so certain also is the fact all of creation shall be filled with my glory. Just as all of Exodus has crescendoed, therefore, to Exodus chapter 40, and finally God coming down and filling, so also one day all of history is crescendoing. It's building higher and higher until the most epic ending of all time when heaven comes down and the whole earth, all of creation, is filled with glory. It's interesting We read earlier that Moses could not enter. We read later that the priests could not enter because of the glory. It also says in Revelation 21, no unclean thing can enter into the city. It can't go in there. It's so full. And the city is all of creation. It will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That is the threefold fulfillment of this passage, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. God has truly come down and taken on flesh. Not just a theophany. He wasn't just visiting. He made it permanent. I remember as a new believer, when I, when I, when I was taught the fact that Christ shall always be human. I think I thought, well, he came down in flesh, but he went back and he dropped it off when he left, right? He no longer needed it. No, he has taken flesh uh, eternally to himself. He truly permanently dwells amongst us. Furthermore, we are filled with the fullness of God. Do you realize that? We are said to be filled with the Spirit. And yet the Spirit is the Spirit of who? Christ. Therefore, that's how Christ dwells in us. And yet the Father is also said to make his home within us because Christ is the image of the Father, such that the whole Trinity indwells us. Truly, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. And yet one day, we look towards an even greater filling. In fact, we cast our hope upon it. It is certain, and we look forward and salivate for that day. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, I I think, perhaps I might say, I wonder. As Dennis would say, I was doing some ponderings, okay? I think, I wonder, there's a bit of tension here still. I think there, there is some evidence that although this points so much to new covenant realities, um, yet I think there's something clear that this tabernacle is not the new covenant reality. I say I wonder because I have to confess, I couldn't find anyone else who really said this. Um, uh, But ponder with me, if you will. I wonder if the fact that Moses could not enter the temple has more significance, or the tabernacle, 
has more significance than just to show us the fullness of the temple, but perhaps to show us some kind of insufficiency of the law and what Moses represents. Now, you might think, well, how do you get there? Um, How do you get to that from where you are? Look again at verse 35. It says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, as I pointed out earlier, this is very similar to the filling of Solomon's temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. But why was it that Moses and the priests could not enter the tabernacle or the temple? Indeed, it might seem normal, perhaps. We could say, well, the priests in Second Chronicles couldn't enter because they had never been experienced to that. But why Moses? Moses had a lot of experience with God's glory. One commentator says, Had not Moses earlier entered right into the glory cloud at the top of Mount Sinai? He had. Had he not been inside the little symbolic tent of meeting that served as a contact point between him and Yahweh until the tabernacle had been built with God's glory descending upon the entrance just a few feet away? Had he not stood right next to Yahweh's glory on so many other occasions? The answer to that is all yes, but here Moses cannot enter. Some commentators understand the reason in terms of Moses being in such awe or perhaps fear that he dared not enter. He couldn't enter in the sense that he could not bring himself to enter, though perhaps physically he might have been able to enter into I kind of think, personally, Moses could not even physically enter, even if he wanted to. I think the reason is, this is not just a cloud. It's a glory cloud, whatever that means, right? It's, it's not just mist. There's, there's a thickness about it. In fact, it's very interesting, in Second Chronicles 5 and 6, when the Ark of the Covenant is placed within Solomon's temple, we're told the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Okay. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. Thick darkness. There's a thickness to this cloud. It's glory. It's not a moisture cloud. This is something that is not like anything you can conceive of, really. Really, ironically, one of the great ironies of the glory cloud is it's piercingly bright and thick darkness at the same time. I don't know what that means. All that to say, I kind of lean towards the fact that Moses could not physically enter the cloud, even if he wanted to. However, we might still ask, But why would Moses be barred, essentially, from entering into the presence of God here? Here, the commentators seem to kind of all hit at the same thing. For example, one modern commentator says, the answer is that the tabernacle was now Yahweh's house and no one else's. It was no more appropriate now for Moses to enter the tabernacle, even though he had been all through it, 
as its building supervisor than it would be for a house builder in modern times to retain a key and enter at will that he had built once it was sold to its occupying owner. So the Lord of the house is here. Thank you very much, right? The Lord is here. If he needs you, he will call you. Similarly, John Gill says, the chief reason may be because as yet he had not a call to enter. Matthew Poole, partly, he says, because he was not called to it as he was not able to go up to Mount Sinai until he was called. That's true. Lastly, Andrew Willett, 16th century Anglican, says, The reason then is this. Moses dared not ascend up unto God into the mountain uncalled, for he, wanted, he waited six days on the mount, and the seventh the Lord called unto him. So also at this time it was not lawful for Moses to come near, being not called or bidden to do so. Hmm. I wonder if what that is getting at is that even here, though God now dwells amongst his people, yet even still there's a separation there. It's such a, an amazing filling. And yet even Moses, shining face Moses, is put outside. There's still not the fullness of free access that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, on the one hand, the New Testament writers explain that our fullness of access, it really goes hand in hand with the fact that we are now children of God. Just as children have free access for the most part with their parents in a way that strangers don't, so also now our having access is so often tied to the fact that we have been adopted and that he is father. For example, um, oh, I guess I forgot. Forgot to put the quote down. Um, by contrast, the Mosaic Covenant is not only marked by a lack of access, but also a lack of freedom. It's slavery. And this is contrasted with the adoption of sons. There are sons who have free access, and there are servants who do not have the free access of children. For example, Galatians 4, Paul compares Hagar and Sarah allegorically to the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, respectively. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. I wonder then if the fact that Moses cannot enter unless he be called signifies still the separation that marks the Mosaic covenant. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 5 through 6, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. John Owen says, Christ is a son, Moses a servant. Christ is over the house, Moses is in the house. Christ is over his own house, 
Moses is in the house of another. He explains, Moses indeed was the son of God by adoption in his own person. But he was not a son in reference unto the house, but a servant by his office. I wonder then if this is why he is put out of the house. Because even though at the time he was the leader of the people of Israel, he was the one God used to institute this covenant, he was even personally saved. Yet in terms of the Mosaic covenant, he was no more than a servant. Rather, it would take the Son to come out of the presence of God to bring and make us sons to bring us in. But that is not the case with the Mosaic Covenant. I wonder. That's all I'll say. I have some musing. The, the good thing is, all that's true, whether or not <laughs> that's what this passage means. We are all children adopted by, by the Father. We have free access whether or not this is true, whether or not my ponderings are off, okay? But, but I wonder if perhaps there is a little bit of tension here. Well, lastly, brothers and sisters, let's look at the last, very last passage of Exodus, verses 36 through 38, the look beyond Exodus, picking up in verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That is the end of the book of Exodus, brothers and sisters. Looking ahead in terms of the rest of their journey, um, we, we know much awaits them. And yet we can also, our own selves, partly look ahead to the rest of our own journey. We know that because Christ, the true tabernacle, has come down, and because he indwells us, Emmanuel will be with us in all the rest of our own wilderness wanderings until we come to the promised land. We shall make it to the end of the age if we keep our eyes on Christ. And I'll end with one quote from John Lightfoot. He was a 17th century Hebrew scholar. And thus endeth Exodus, he says, in a cloud, under which we are to look for a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, in which the Godhead should dwell bodily. In other words, the whole point of everything in Exodus, Jesus Christ. And we will end there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious, precious Son. Lord, what a marvelous mystery that there was a man in whom it could be said, all the fullness of God dwelt. That when we look at this man, he was not an angel in the sense of that's where his deity comes from, but he was fully man and fully God Lord, he is also your son, sent out from your presence, by whom you have also made us sons. He is the heir of the house, and we have been made co-heirs with him. We now have free access to you. Father God, as we continue in our wilderness wanderings in this age, in this life, would you enable us to 
come to you boldly with the access that we have with you as our Father, that we might find fresh strength to make it, Lord, until that day when, as you said, as I live and as the earth will be filled with my glory. Lord, we look forward to that day. Would you give us delight and anticipation for it in the name of Christ? We give you thanks for this book in Jesus' name.